Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the weekly podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, one of the executive editors here at BioCentury, and today I'm joined by Simon Fishburne, editor in chief, Selena Koch, executive editor, Paul Bonanos, director of Biopharma Intelligence, and Karen Koch Tusman, director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, we discuss the setback for Biogen and Sage in MDD, the biotech IPO window, is it cracking open at last, at least a little bit? And we take a look at Sanofi's digital ambitions under CEO Paul Hudson. But first, this fall, BioCentury and Bay Helix will be putting on the East-West Summit. That will be taking place October 2nd through the 4th in Kendall Square. Don't miss your opportunity to meet CEOs of China Biotechs in Boston. And the following month, in November, the China Healthcare Summit returns. It will be in Shanghai. Information on both events available at biocentury.com on the events tab. Learn how to register. And if you're interested in being a presenting company, you can find out information there as well. Okay, well, late Friday, FDA handed a setback to Sage and Biogen for depression drug Zoranolone. It was approved for postpartum depression, but FDA wants at least one more study to support its effectiveness in major depressive disorder. Selena, you are our go-to editor when it comes to all things Biogen. Uh, what does this mean for the company and its partner? Right. Well, um, I'll let Paul talk about what it means for Sage, the partner. Um, on the Biogen front, it means they were planning for a dual launch in these two indications. Um, and now they're not going to have that. So the postpartum indication is one where there's only one other approved therapy, but the major depressive disorder is the much bigger market in terms of patient numbers. And, um, you know, so this could severely dent their prospects, commercial prospects for this therapy and turn up the pressure on, you know, meeting their growth goals other ways, right? Whether that's execution of their recent acquisition of Riata or other deals that have yet to come. So Selena, if we just focus on the disease, major depressive disorder, that's a really difficult disease anyway, and trials are difficult. Do you think Biogen is going to do the follow-up trial? And what would it need to look like? What, what do we know about that? So I don't think it's announced yet whether it plans to do one or more than one trial, and we don't know exactly what's going to be required. But yeah, depression is notoriously hard indication. And historically, we've seen really big phase three programs with four or five trials. Most of the approved therapies out there failed some of those trials, but hit in a couple. And FDA had decided that was enough, right? And that was even true with Johnson & Johnson's S-ketamine, which was widely regarded as a big breakthrough or whatever, missed a few of its trials. Um, but that's not the case in this one. In this case, FDA came down the other way. Um, if should Biogen decide to go down this path and, and try to make it happen, it, you know, it'll be a long road. 
which I guess is why you talk about them needing to get their revenues from somewhere else. Right. Yep. So obviously, Bucker has pointed to Lacanamab or Lakimbi, it's now called, as a one, one launch it's leaning on. This was supposed to be the other, the second leg of kind of a two launch plan. Um, this one's going to be, you know, smaller at this point for the foreseeable future. Paul, what's happening at Sage? Well, they, um, it sounds like they're still hashing out exactly what they're going to do, but they're, they say they're looking at um, reprioritizations within the pipeline and a downsizing of staff. And today, Monday, they've lost about half their value, which is um, a, a loss of about a billion dollars, a little more in market cap. Uh, last I saw, they were down 53% and their market cap was just above a billion. All right. And they do have a billion dollars in cash, at least they did. To close out the first half, several other compounds in the clinic. And so we'll see what's next. Yeah, reducing operating expenses and trying to extend that runway. Um, I think they think they can get into 2025 right now. Okay, let's turn to IPOs. July was the strongest month in a while for biotech IPOs. Three companies raised substantial offerings on NASDAQ. Some out there have wondered whether we're finally seeing a thaw that might allow more private companies to get out. Paul, you took a look at some of them. Tell us what you found. Yeah, um, you know, we got to wondering a while ago about all these biotechs that had drawn crossover rounds before things turned bad in early 2022. And those, of course, by crossovers, I mean companies that have taken cash from investors who, um, who put cash into both public and private entities and often for a private company that's predictive that an IPO is near. And when we took a look, we found that there are still a lot of companies in that category drawing crossover cash years ago and still waiting for their chance to become public companies. So um, we came down with some numbers first. There were 148 companies that raised at least $75 million in a round during 2020 or 21 with at least two crossovers participating. And in most cases, there were more than that, uh, five, six, seven crossovers in. We counted 82 that are public now, most via IPO, but some via mergers, uh, reverse mergers, regular mergers, whichever way. Um, a few have been acquired, some have gone out of business too, and that left 56 companies that are probably still looking for liquidity one way or another. So then in order to figure out who among them might be able to go public sometime soon, we had to look at the, the companies that have actually gotten out this year. And there are really a half dozen that have raised you know, substantial IPOs. I, I think the, the barrier is 25 million or more. All of them actually raised a lot more than that. And if you were drawing $75 million crossover rounds, yes, you'd be looking at a bigger IPO. Common threads there. The biggest thing was, have they made clinical progress? And in, in fact, five of the six that did go public have entered the clinic and four of those five have some data to show for it. Some were mid to late stage. You might remember Acelerin had the year's biggest IPO so far. And they've got proof of concept data uh, in hydrodenitis suppurativa. Some were earlier, and there was one preclinical company, Apogee, that uh, has already since started human studies since going public. And honestly, that company's got kind of a lower risk pipeline too, antibodies against familiar targets with dosing advantages. So to look at those 56 companies, how many of them were close to this universe? Well, it turned out 40 have entered the clinic and 11 of those have generated some data. But most of them were still very early. Uh, in most cases, uh, phase one safety readouts, sometimes healthy volunteers. 
And they're still looking going forward at milestones that they hope will show efficacy. And I think that will really be key. Efficacy data are maybe what it really takes to build investor trust in this environment. Um, and of course, it, it all depends on other factors, disease areas, regulatory paths, all that. So, Paul, if you could point to one or two examples of some key milestones coming up from this set of companies. Sure, I have more than, more than a couple even. Yeah, I mean, if you look at companies that have generated efficacy data, well, you know, there was one, Arteva, that actually tried to go public two years ago and withdrew their offering. And now they have a more mature data set, some early responses in a study of an NK cell therapy. So maybe they're getting close, but it's still uh, low patient numbers. I think they need to build more evidence, but they've already shown the desire to go public. So maybe they're one that's that's looking down the road. There's also a gene therapy company, Forge Biologics, that has promising early data in crab disease. So I've been out and about and talking to people. And one of the things that emerges that in this environment, I think I should stipulate that after companies go public is that they really want to have a value creating catalyst within like 12 months, right? There's a lot of pressure to have not just data, clinical data when you go public, but something that's going to happen in the next 12 months. What's your gauge on that for these companies, Paul? I, I agree. And there are many that have clinical catalysts coming up. You, you may want to stay tuned. We might be um, preparing something more to say about that too. Some of the names that have very early data, but you know, more to come. Uh, I can name uh, Escient Pharma, Verge Genomics, In Silico Medicine, Arteos Pharma, Pallian Pharma. That's uh, that last one. If it rings a bell, it's a Carolyn Bertozzi company, the Nobel laureate. And, you know, I think it's interesting that the, the imprimatur of someone like that um, on a private company can really help build a case, build the story for investors as well. And likewise, there are a few other names like that. Fog Pharma just hired Mathai Maman. Uh, they're in the clinic. They've got a, a readout coming up sometime. I don't think they've said exactly when yet. Uh, Greg Verdeen co-founded that company. They're trying to reach some difficult targets. So that's one to watch. We also noticed last week that Jamie Rubin, formerly of Goldman Sachs and PJT Partners, landed at an interesting company, Boundless Bio. They're in the clinic too. So they've got some readout coming along the way. I, I'm not sure when, but... Um, Again, she spent two years at EQRX recently, took that company public via a merger, and one wonders if the same is coming for Boundless. So we'll see what's brewing there. And, um, and of course, you know, J yes, J Jamie Rubin for, you know, over 20 years was an analyst at Goldman Sachs. I think people look at that, you hire a CFO, you know, you do the math. Mm -hmm. Or she does the math. There are another couple a couple of categories that were interesting to me, like um, you know, two companies that raised very large amounts of capital, um, but are interestingly are both LLCs. So Elevate Bio, uh, cell and gene therapy company that has a kind of complex model. They invest in companies that fit in with uh, some of the services they perform, and then Nimbus Therapeutics, which has already generated returns via a couple of deals with uh, Takeda and Gilead. You know. They may be able to generate returns for their investors without going public, but when you've raised a billion dollars, you would have to think that some of the money that came in a while ago will anticipate liquidity sooner or later. So maybe there's an exit coming for the mothership, as well as some of the programs that they advance underneath. Anyway, there are more names in the story. Uh, we may have more to say about private companies uh, with upcoming milestones too, like I said. So there's lots to stay tuned for. All right. Thanks for that, Paul.
You can find Paul's analysis up on biocentry.com. Okay, under CEO Paul Hudson, Sanofi has declared itself all in on AI and data science to drive everything from candidate discovery to clinical trial planning, manufacturing optimization, and supply chain management. Karen, now that the company is three years into this digital transformation, I'm curious, how are they faring in terms of upskilling the team to meet these digital ambitions? Well, I had a really great opportunity to chat with Diane West, who's the VP and global head of digital for the R&D part of the organization. And she's really responsible for getting the rubber to hit the road in terms of the digital transformation in the realm of R&D. It was really interesting to talk to her because at this moment, we all hear about AI and sort of accelerating tools. And these, there's sort of these questions that arise about what does that mean for our daily work, for the workplace? And it was really interesting to hear her say that it's not that people need to go and become AI experts or need to go and learn to code. It's that people, everyone across the organization needs to understand the product development cycle. Not, we're not talking about pharmaceutical product development. We're talking about software product development. It was really interesting to dig into why that is. And really it's because to transform the way people work, to make digital tools that accelerate what people can do, that expand what people can do, you need this iterative cycle of user input, of getting minimal viable products out and improving on those. And that's something that company-wide needs to be implemented. So it was really interesting to hear her discuss how that's rolling out. Right. So software engineering is a much faster iterative process of design, build, test over and over and over. So they're trying to just bring that sort of pace and style of thinking into all of their people. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. She gave the example of, uh, let's say you've got a research scientist who creates Excel sheets to analyze data as, you know, a process familiar to many of us. There's this idea that we're, we need to move beyond static Excel sheets, static PowerPoint, because as she said, you know, the minute the data goes in there, it's stale. And so this idea of building tools that constantly update um, are always up to date, but also that generate analyses um, and insights for you right off the bat. And so, but to do that properly, you need to, you know, the, the digital scientist, the, the developer needs to understand what it is that the experimental scientist does. Um, what are the steps going into, you know, b- before the data gets into that sheet? What happens afterwards? And the ability to communicate what you do and how you do it as a user to drive that development cycle of these products that accelerate the way people work, that's going to be really key. Um, so it was interesting to imagine, you know, a post spreadsheet universe where we're, we're dealing with something more living um, and active. And to do that right, you need uh, the, the user input. Talk at all about um, learning experiences because I can certainly imagine in the early days of a project like this 
the kind of software development team just misses the mark fully. They haven't figured out how to actually do the kind of communication necessary to really grok the user experience. Um, and then like maybe that's something they could work out a smoother process around over time. Did she, did she give any examples along those lines? Well, I think it really comes down to iteration. It really comes down to the fact that it's not this one big thing that you you go away and you build the grand thing and come back and everyone now has to go and use it. I think there is this idea of the product development cycle that the, the minimal viable product, you get it into users' hands, you collect that feedback and take it really seriously and build from there. Um, so I think that's going to be key is not trying to sort of solve the whole thing and come up with the perfect product all at once. But getting people to think along those lines is something new, right? As users, you kind of expect like, okay, you know, your Excel or whatever it is, it's, it's, ba it's already baked and um, you have to just learn how to use it. And so I think, you know, what she was talking about was transitioning into a mindset where as sort of users and digital teams alike, you're in, you anticipate that there will be iteration that you're going to, it's not going to be perfect right off the bat, but that by working sort of hand in hand all along the way that you get to that final end vision of the product. Sounds like a delicate balance trying to like make your processes better while still getting work done, you know? Like I think we we all relate to that. Yeah. And, yeah. and she really talked to, she said, change management is really what's below the iceberg um, on this, that yes, there's the tools and whatever, you know, AI goes into it, but really the, the key to getting this done is shifting people away from what, whatever they've done for the last three years into doing something new. Um, and so that's something that is a pretty important piece of this as well, along with the technology itself. All right. And the Q and A is up on biocentry.com. All right, well, it is almost that time of year. Parents can sympathize, back to school right around the corner. Back to school means something a little differently here at Biocentry. The back to school issue, as we call it, is our signature issue. Um, I'd like to bring in Simone to tell us a little bit about what back to school is and what the topic might be this year. Thanks, Jeff. So ever since Biocentury was founded 30 years ago, 31, who's counting? Um, it has run an annual back to school issue started by our founder and chairman, Karen Bernstein and co-founder and CEO, David Flores. Um, and every year it takes one topic and goes in depth on that topic. As ever, we try to be forward-looking and we try to do something that is got broad industry relevance, should we say. This year's topic, we're focusing on what it takes to build a sustainable, high-value biotech and what we call tier jumpers. How do you jump into the 1 billion plus tier from 1 to 5 to 5 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 plus? And so we take a little bit of a deep dive on that. We have some data as ever. We have a focus on four, what I call poster children companies who have uh, scaled the heights, uh, looking at their model. 
And then we've talked to a whole bunch of people about what are the criteria that, that one needs for a sustainable biotech. And, and I think it's also important to know that you know, most companies don't really get to 10 billion. It's, it's what one person called rarefied air. You know, most companies don't get to one to, to over 10 billion or over 20 billion. And actually not that many get to over 5 billion. And that's because quite often they're taken out and that's fine. And some of them live for a long time in the one to $5 billion range and they have products and those products help patients and that's fine. So it's not a sort of value judgment that this is what everyone must do. And we also will have a little bit of discussion, maybe on a podcast, Jeff, on uh, how many of these supersized biotechs the industry can actually handle. Like, you know, can everyone be um, above average, as they say in Harvard? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that's what we're diving into. It's um, a fairly long piece at the moment, which I'm sure Celine will whack down a bit and then, uh, you know, we'll enjoy producing that. And you will tell us, Jeff, when this is going to run. I will indeed. Well, uh, traditionally, we run it in the week running up to the U.S. Labor Day holiday. And as that's not very meaningful for many of our listeners around the world, um, it, it'll come out at the end of August. And we will indeed dig in on one of our podcasts coming up once the issue is baked. So you'll be able to read about it or listen about it here on BioCentury this week. Also coming up this week on BioCentury.com, Karen will be uh, putting out a story on obesity. Karen, what should we expect? Well, a couple months ago, my colleague Stephen Hansen did a dive on what was coming up in the clinic for obesity breaking down between orals and injectables and looking at the clinical data so far. And I take that a, a step sort of more sciencey, looking at the mechanisms being targeted by these next up compounds in the clinic. And it's interesting because um, a lot of them are clustering around uh, sort of familiar uh, physiological mechanisms, but there's some branching off as well. So uh, you'll be able to see that pretty soon. Excellent. Thanks for that, Karen and Selena Simone and Paul. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology, professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 